Welcome back to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. Today we are wrapping up our discussion with Chad High and Chad Bornhold from the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. And we had a great discussion with the Chads, so great in fact that we split it into three parts. This is part three, so if you haven't listened to part one or part two, be sure to go back and listen to those episodes now. In this episode, we are finally getting to the Council of Elrond, which is really the best part of our discussion. And we conclude with a very special Grey Havens that you won't want to miss. And as always, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please do us a big favor and go leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you're listening to podcasts. I know you've probably heard it before, but it really is the best way for you to support us because ratings and reviews are the way that those platforms decide who to promote. And lastly, we love hearing from all of you. So if you have any comments, thoughts, want to join the conversation, please send us an email at watchpartylotr at gmail.com or send us a message or contact us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of our social media spaces. We'd love to hear from you. And we're going to start doing some mailbag segments in future episodes. So maybe we'll just read your comments on the air. All right. On to the show. Uh, well, fellas, we've done it. We have reached... The Council of Elrond. So here is the the real meat of our discussion here. Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you've been summoned here to answer the threat of Mordor. Elrond welcomes those who are assembled to determine the fate of the ring. Bring forth the ring, Frodo. Frodo places the ring in the center of the gathering on a platform for all to witness. Boromir recounts a foreboding dream that he had. It's true dream. I saw the eastern sky grow dark, but in the west a pale light lingered. A voice was crying, your doom is near at hand. Then begins to reach for the ring, this is in the extended version, but when he does, Gandalf begins speaking the words on the ring in the black speech of Mordor. Gandalf declares that the ring is altogether evil and cannot be used. But Boromir declares that it is a gift to the foes of Mordor and argues that it should be given to him and given to Gondor. Long has my father, the steward of Gondor, kept the forces of Mordor at bay. By the blood of our people are your lands kept safe. Aragorn counters that none can wield it it. and the the ring answers to Sauron alone. When Boromir questions Aragorn's authority on the subject, Legolas then reveals Aragorn's true identity as the heir to the throne of Gondor. This is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. This is Isildur's heir. Boromir is taken aback, but says, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. Elrond declares that the ring must be destroyed. You have only one choice. The ring must be destroyed. But when Gimli attempts to do so with his axe, his axe shatters and Gimli is thrown back. And what are we waiting for? (laughs) 
ring cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloin, by any craft that we here possess. It must be taken deep into Elrond explains that the ring must be thrown into the fiery chasm, chasm from, from whence it came, and that one of you must do this. Cue Boromir's famous and and most memed line: "One does not simply walk into Mordor." Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. He declares that this task cannot be done. Have you heard nothing Legolas snaps back that the ring must be destroyed, must at which point Gimli chimes in, and the, the meeting and descends fail, into then? arguing and raised voices. Takes back what is his. I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf. Frodo, meanwhile, is fixated on the ring, which whispers mysteriously, flames flashing on the band. Amid the chaos, Frodo stands and announces that he will take the ring to Mordor. I will take the ring to Mordor. Though he does not know the way. The group falls silent until Gandalf steps forward to help him bear this burden. I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins, as long as it is yours to bear. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli pledge themselves as well. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. Boromir follows suit, at which time Sam, Merry, and Pippin leap out of the bushes and refuse to be left behind. Mr. Frodo's not going anywhere without me. No, indeed, it is hardly possible to separate you even when he is summoned to a secret council and you are not. Oi! We're coming too! We'll have to send us home tied up in a sack to stop it. Nine companions. So be it. You, you shall be, be the, the fellowship, fellowship of, the, of ring, the ring, says Elrond. Right. Where are we going? All right, a lot to unpack here. A lot. This is, I think this is one of the scenes that I would, I would mark as a great example of how to cinematically adapt a book. Just the usual use of visual motifs, you know, the giant ring. There are changes, there are a lot of changes. But it is it is a powerful scene, and you understand the tension of what is going on. You understand the significance for Frodo. You there's a lot of information that is still being conveyed, even though it's no longer a board meeting. It is condensed, it is abridged, but there's still a lot of information about dwarves, about elves, about Aragorn. It is it is coming through. Um, but just the use of visuals, the use of sound. You know when uh, Gandalf is uh, reciting the Black Speech on the Ring. It is a powerful cinematic scene, and um, I think one of the best adapted scenes. I'm going to say that it might be a hot take. A lot of people might not agree, but I, I think that's the case. I think it's really well adapted for what it is. I, I do. I, there's no like like we said earlier in 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 this episode. If 
the movie version of the Council of Elrond was put into book form, it would be about two pages. So it would not be a full chapter, right? But you don't need all of that for the cinematic experience. You you need the conflict that occurs, and you need the dilemma that occurs over what to do with the ring, because really, uh, the Council of Elrond, aside from all of the history that's given, which is great as the reader, you get all of this history and you get all of this backstory. Tolkien's using the, the chapter for two reasons. He's using it to give you the history, but he's also using it to set up the rest of the book. And I think that Jackson and Fran Walsh do a good job of, they don't do such a good job of giving you the history and the backstory. They give you a little bit, but not nearly as much as you would get if you, if you, if you read the book. But they do a really good job of setting up the rest of the story that's to come. Some of it is a little bit more in your face than... Um, than you get in the book. The, the conflict between characters is much more subtle in the books. Uh, you can tell that there is conflict. You can tell that there is disagreement, but there's no, they don't get up out of their chairs and argue with one another uh, and, you know, and yell over one another like they do in the film. So the, the tension is much more in your face as a viewer for the, for the movie. But I think that's probably necessary in terms of the visual medium. It's it, it, the sort of subtleties that you get in the book are probably not, uh, don't translate over to that. Well, and it very powerfully illustrates the danger of the ring, which you don't really get in, in the, in the book version, uh, because there isn't that in your face conflict uh, to the extent there's any conflict. It's very muted. Um, and I think it, you know, we've been told how, how deadly and perilous the ring is and how dangerous it is. But here we see probably the starkest example of how dangerous it is in the meeting between the free peoples of Middle-earth to decide the fate of the ring, immediately they're in conflict with each other. Um, And they're arguing and they're up on their feet and they're shouting and raised voices. These are peaceful people. These are the good guys. And they're they're almost coming to blows over the ring. And um, that is such a powerful, powerful illustration of of how dangerous it is. And and we see that through the eyes of Frodo, which is great. I mean, he he needs to remain our, our central character. And he, you know, he's seeing... They reflect the that conflict reflected in the ring, the fires, you know, metaphorically engulfing uh, all these free peoples, and he is sort of forced onto his feet. I will say that say that one thing that I miss in in this scene is the absence of the hand of fate in bringing all these peoples together. Uh, in this in the movie version, Elrond basically says, "You have been summoned here." I think he just says you have been summoned. I don't think he says I have summoned you. I think he says you have been summoned, which I guess leaves it a little open and open ended. But in in the books, it's very clear that no one was summoned. They all arrive there coincidentally on errands of their own. Boromir has uh, a vision that he's seeking an answer to. Legolas is bringing a message from from Thranduil because uh, Gandalf has escaped. But Legolas doesn't know the true significance of that news. But unless that's why he's there, um, uh, Glowin and Gimli arriving there to, to deliver messages and seek counsel of their own. Um, but it is totally coincidental. It's chance, if chance you call it, which I think Elrond says twice, or Elrond says and Gandalf says, il- indicating that this is more than just chance. It is the hand of Iluvatar. And it's that's a beautiful thing that runs throughout Tolkien. You know, this is the Prancing Pony guys call it Spibimi, which is a version of this fate concept. And that's totally stripped out. You know, you, you lose it. In, in this version of the scene in the film. So I do miss that. Uh, it's still a real, very well done scene, very effective scene, 
but uh, I, I miss that beautiful aspect of Tolkien's writing in this scene. I, I agree. And in the books, Elrond says it straight out. He says, you are, you have, you have been called you. He says, you have been called hither in the very nick of time called. I say, though, I do not call you to me. And so he says it straight out and you're right in the, in the films. It's, it's sort of ambiguous. It's sort of like left up a little to interpretation. How do you remember, how do you remember those lines so well? Oh, because I had to memorize them for the, the, for, for our count. I, I was Elrond for our Council of Elrond thing that we did, so I had to memorize all the Elrond's lines. Yes, I do remember those. Before before I shut up and let and let uh, Bornholt go, it, one of the one of the things that I do miss too is uh, in the in the film version, Elrond says, "The ring must be destroyed. We must." take it to the fire, right? He says something like that. He doesn't, there, there are no other options that are presented on the table. And I, I, I would have liked to have seen those other options and sort of like, I would have liked to have seen a little bit of that, that argument with the other, with the, the other options presented. I think that would have been, would have been really, really fun to see in the, in the film version. But then you would have had to have some of those other characters introduced in the council, which are, you know, we've already kind of established that they kind of shied away from introducing some of those periphery characters they could have at least suggested well let's keep it and hide it in rivendell it'll be safe here and and discuss that option i i don't think they, they could get into well let's send it across the sea because then we're opening this pandora's box of the valar and you know with none of which is discussed in the films um we can't really talk about Tom Bombadil because we cut that out, but they could at least say someone could suggest, well, let's keep it here where it'd be safe. And then no one can explain, no, it ain't safe. You know, Soren will, will eventually overrun us. We can't fight them off. We can't fight Saruman as well. Um, and then move on to, to the other options. They could have really done that because um, on the scene at the very end of the, uh, of the mini meeting scene, remember Frodo, when he says, I am ready to go home right before that, he says the ring will be safe here. So, they could have just repeated that right. in the council and said, well, I thought we were keeping it here. And then Elrond says, no, you ain't. <laughs> you know? And because it, especially if you put a little bit of sarcasm in there where you're like, you're like, you don't realize the gravity of this situation. You know, you people who are, you know, locked away in your protected shire don't realize that, you have these powerful people protecting you, or you would all be dead already. You don't realize how this is, is important that we got to get rid of this. Now in the book version, there's the Glorfindel thing where Glorfindel says to throw it in the sea. And Gandalf says, no, we can't do that because seas and lands masses may change. I would like to see Glorfindel like hit himself on the forehead. Like, Oh my God, why didn't I think of that? You know, cause Glorfindel knows better. He actually says it in the book. Right. He says, let's throw it in the sea. It'd be safe in the sea. And and then Gandalf goes, no, it wouldn't. And then, you know, Gorfindel had to have gone, oh, yeah, you're right. It wouldn't be safe in the sea. What am I thinking? You know, so. But here's here's the here's what I wanted to bring up to y'all. And everybody can think about this, even the people at home. So this is a little strange. So when Boromir mentions the uh, the dream that came to him. He said, in a dream, I saw the eastern sky, in the movie, right? He says, in the dream, I saw the eastern sky grow dark, but in the west, something, something, something. I can't remember the exact words from the movie, but I remember the exact words from the book. <laughs> so so <clears throat> in the book, he says that they were attacked in Dithilien. 
Well, I'm positive that they were attacked in Athelion in the wee morning hours of June 20th of 3018. Fadamir went to sleep on June 19th. So the night that they were attacked in Athelion, Fadamir had that dream where the, the, it's, the eastern sky grows dark, and from the west a pale light lingers, and the voice says, Seek for the sword that was broken in Imladris it dwells. There shall be counsels taken stronger than Morgul spells. There shall be shown a token that doom is near at hand, for Isildur's bane shall waken, and the halfling forth shall stand. What I'm getting at here is that that dream came to him on June 19th as they were about to get attacked, and it came to Faramir, not Boromir. Well then, in the book... They don't really say this in the movie, but you have to assume, basically, if the movie doesn't show something, it's not that it didn't happen. They just didn't film it. That's the way I think of these things, unless they show something that's against it. So really, Bodimir had the dream, but he said that it came to Faramir several times and once to me. Well, remember from the Silmarillion, Ulmo is giving them dreams all the time. So the, the Valar know what they're doing. So they sent this dream to Faramir the very first time was the night before they got attacked. So it's possible the dream may have helped them. And then he, you know, he said that we escaped by, we escaped through Osgiliath and we destroyed the bridge and swam the rest of the way across. And then he says that the dream came to Faramir several times and once to me. Well, whoever put that dream in Faramir's head, put it in his head several times before ever putting it in Boromir's head, meaning Faramir was supposed to go, not Boromir. And look what happens when Boromir goes, right? So the 19th is when Faramir first had the dream. A few hours later, but technically on the 20th, is when they were attacked. And if, if the dream came to Faramir several times, however many times that may be, we know that it came to Bonamir before July 4th because that's when he left Minas Tirith to head to Rivendell. From July 4th to October 25th is 110 days. That's how long it took for Bonamir to go from Minas Tirith to Rivendell, 110 days. That means that he had to have had that dream sometime before it, October or July 3rd or earlier. And there was only a 13-day span between the first time that Faramir had the dream and the latest time in which Boromir could have had the dream. And Boromir is like, I'm going to Rivendell. Boromir, when he had the dream, he went and asked Denethor about it. Denethor said, well, Imladris is the name of Rivendell. That's, it's, it actually means Rivendell. And so Boromir is like, I'm going. <laughs> so... So there's only a, a two-week period there. So I, I thought a little bit about this, and you made a comment you know, that Faramir was the one who was supposed to go, and instead Boromir went and look what happened. And the implication being, I assume, that Boromir is a worse candidate because he succumbed to the temptation of the ring and tried to take it from Frodo, which is a negative thing. But I also view that as, in fact, it was necessary for Boromir to go because if he did not do that, Frodo would not have broken off from the company 
which was a necessary fork in the road for him to to end up, you know, doing all for all the subsequent dominoes to fall for him to end up getting to, to Mount Doom. And so it's a weird twist of fate. And it's, it's another example of the Tolkien's brilliant use of fate that now I, I don't know who puts the the, the dreams in, in people's heads. And Tolkien's not explicit about this. Maybe it's we can imagine maybe it's one of the Valar who's intervening somehow if, if the Valar do indeed intervene, intervene in Middle Earth at all. But let's say it's one of the Valar who don't have perfect knowledge. They only have a, a, a reflected knowledge of Eru's plan. And so they think Faramir is the better candidate. We should have him go. And for two weeks, they send him the dream. and then he, But he doesn't answer the call. And so they send him once to Boromir because Boromir's a tough guy. He, he goes. Well, in, in fact, it was necessary to effectuate Eru's plan for Boromir to go because he was the worst candidate, because he was flawed and succumbed to those flaws but the mortal worlds of the Silmarillion uh, shall be but mine instrument. The errors of Boromir, the errors of the Valar who potentially put the dreams in his in his head, they all ended up working towards Eru's ultimate plan. So it's it's a beautiful, beautiful, complex tapestry of narrative lines that lead to the ultimate conclusion. And that's what Tolkien was so great at. Yeah, I think that the, this is a perfect example of what the boys would call Spabimi over on the over on the Prancing Pony podcast. The and what what Bornholt was talking about about how you know who who ends up the the reasoning why Boromir ends up going and not Faramir. I, I think that Boromir has the has not the courage not the cur- courage is not the right word, but he has the 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 stick-to-itiveness and he has the the. The situation is right for Boromir to go and not Faramir, and I, I, it, I, I've, I've made the argument before that it's Ulmo that's sending these dreamscapes to both first Faramir and and then Boromir, and it is Ulmo who thinks that Faramir is a better candidate, and I, and I think it's Ulmo for two reasons. One is because if you look at dreams and dreamscapes a lot of times it's almost sending some of the the characters in the Silmarillion putting things into their head through dreams and so there's a connection there that can be made and also uh, there's uh, a lot of it has to do with rain and water and things like that the vision that Faramir has after Boromir dies is Boromir in the boat that's coming back down the river so there's there you know there's water involved and things like that uh so I, I do think that the visions and what you don't get in the film, you don't get anything about the visions being sent to Boromir, who sends the visions to Boromir. You don't get anything about that in the film. You just know that Boromir has this vision. Uh, and they could have done that because they do, Jackson does allude to uh, uh, the Undying Land several times in the in the films. They, they don't come out and say what they are, but they, they do, they are alluded to. So... I think there are a couple of missed opportunities there that they could have that they could have uh, capitalized on. One one quick thing to add on to the end of that: had Faramir gone instead of Boromir, the Spabimi still would have worked out. Eru is going to he's going to weave everything his way. When it when Faramir didn't go as was intended, and Boromir did go, well then there's just there's basically a little thread that goes off to the side where we have to regroup a little bit, but the final product is still going to be the same because Eru's will is going to win out. Even though men, dwarves, hobbits, elves, and even Ainur don't know, 
Eru knows. He's seen it all. And any time anyone tries to throw a monkey wrench in his plan, they become an instrument of providence. And just like you said, shall prove but mine instrument and greater things. Whenever you, whenever something goes evilly, evil will have been good to have been. As in evil has no origin. That's what you mean by that. As in everything was once. Yes. Anything, yes. Since, since you all came from me, you can't do anything that does not somehow stem from my intention. Anytime you try to change what my plan was, you came from me. So anything that you do eventually steers my way. Yeah, which connects, which connects beautifully back to the fact that in the book it is actually Eru who destroys the ring. So it's all, you know, for full circle here. Um, yeah, I think one thing that I'd like to mention that stands out to me so much in this scene is just Frodo shines in this scene. A lot of people talk about how Frodo really doesn't get his due in the in the movie. And I think this scene highlights the, Frodo's sheer bravery and force of will in that he sees he sees the ring and hears the black speech. He knows the full weight of what he's taking on and he does it anyway. And he volunteers and he steps forward and you almost see on his face like the inevitability of this decision, even though he's tormented about it. He he does step forward and I think. That's a really great moment for Frodo. And I also really love all of them stepping forward to surround him and his friends refusing to be left behind is so true to the books, like their fierce, fierce loyalty. I'm so glad that that is depicted in this moment. Yeah, and it's actually pulled from the next chapter, but it makes sense to wrap it in. It's a very funny moment. I mean, Pippin's line at the end is, is a great laugh out loud moment I always enjoyed. Yeah, I think uh, just to kind of uh, capitalize on what, what Jen said about Elijah Wood's performance in this scene, I think it's it's very very good. It's uh, Elijah Wood delivers the, the when he when he's talking over the argument, saying "I will take it," and they all kind of quiet down and they look at him and he says, "And the, though I do not know the way, it's it's great. It's 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 very very emotional for me to see that scene, and I've seen it, you know." I don't know how many times I've seen it and it's still emotional for me to, to see that. So Elijah Wood definitely uh, does a good job there. And I think that's probably in a, a really good way of, of assembling the fellowship, even though, you know, Elrond says you shall be the fellowship of the ring, which is uh, obvious. They, that's, they're never really addressed as the fellowship of the ring ever. In Title the card. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, you shall be. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it probably is a better way to do that in, in, for cinematics to have all of the characters volunteer right then than to wait until as in the books, Elrond kind of like explains who's going to go with who um, uh, later on. So yeah, I do, I do think that's an, that's an improvement sort of for cinematic uh, things. I'm going to go off on a little tangent on the ring verse, because I believe that the, the most, the best part of this, the best done part of this section really the entire council of elrond is is how they uh just did the whole ring verse because the movie does a really really good job of recreating 
what's in the book when Gandalf begins speaking, even though it's at a different, it's in a different way, of course. But it when I in, when I read the book and I see the part where he says that I have done and this I have read when he talks about throwing it in the fire, and then he starts reading, he starts starts reciting the the ring. He says the whole ring ring verse. And it says the change in the wizard's voice was astounding. And then it describes how the elves were reeling in pain just from hearing it. It was it was actually painful for them to hear it. He wasn't screaming. It wasn't painful because of the noise. The words themselves are violent. And another thing I really like about the ring verse and I was going to bring this up that way everybody who's listening to it, everybody knows, everybody knows that Tolkien was a big philologist and knew words real well. But a lot of people don't know how to get started learning any of this stuff because it's just, it's hard, you know. And so this ring verse is a good example of an easy little bit of his created languages to learn. And so what I was going to say, if anybody knows like some of the romantic languages other than English, like like hablar in Spanish, hablar is to speak. Well, in black speech, durbat is to rule. So to rule, and then like you would say who or whom, so you say whom, well, that's u. So it's durbatul. And then all is ook, and it's all one word. You just you just append those at the end. They're like suffixes. So, ash nazg is one ring. Think about nazg is ring, right? Nazgul is ring wraith. So ash nazg is one ring, and then durbat is to rule. Ul ook them all. Ash Nazg Durbatuluk, one ring to rule them all. Then the next one is really close. Ash Nazg, again, Gimbat. Instead of Durbat, it's Gimbat. That's to find. So Ash Nazg Gimbatul. The first time you said Durbatuluk, them all. This time you're saying them. So you're saying one ring to find them. Which is Ashnaz Gimbatul. The next one is Ashnazg Frakatuluk, because you're saying the Uluk again because it's them all again, but that is to bring. Frakat is to bring. It's just like Spanish. And then the last one is Ahvuzumishi Krimpatul, which is Krimpat is to bind, and then Ul is them. But the first part where I said ah, which is A-G-H, it looks like you're saying ag, right? But it's A-G-H is like ah, which is and. And then the burzum, remember the, the, the orcs call baradur lugburs. Burz means dark. And then burzum means darkness. And then ishi means within. So 
means and in the darkness bind them. It's a real easy for little four lines which you can quickly learn and you can understand how deep he went into creating these and it's not something that takes a whole lot of effort to learn that the ring verse itself. So I'm so glad we have you on here to go through that because I mean I don't speak the black speech. I don't speak Spanish. I barely speak English. I don't I don't have much of a talent for languages. But having you walk through it, um, I mean, you can really appreciate, even for a, 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 someone who's terrible languages like me, you can really appreciate this is, he set it up like a real language. I mean, it is, yeah. you know, no one was as good at creating languages as Tolkien and uh, even the black speech designed to be violent, as you said, yeah. uh, horrible on the ears. I mean, it, it really accomplishes that purpose. Well, the, these four lines are the easiest of the Tolkien words to figure out. And as, and as harsh as they sound, because you hear like I'm, I'm, I'm guttering, I'm making guttering sounds, guttural sounds when I do that, kind of like hacking almost, like whenever you're trying to get phlegm out of your throat. Well, the, the Elvish words are just as beautiful sounding as what these black speech words are horrible sounding. He's, he's a master in every way. He wanted this to sound horrible, and it does. He wanted that to sound beautiful, and it is. When you can just see the the care that Tolkien put into something, even like something like the Black Speech, which these are the only lines that he really wrote of the Black Speech. He didn't write really any other lines. He just wrote the ring verse for the Black Speech, but he still wanted to stick to what would a real language, what what would the laws of a real language be like? He didn't want to just make something up, right? And that's just even something small like that. That's how much care he put into to all of the language building that he did. Yeah, don't let me fool you into thinking that I can speak this stuff well. I'm not Carl Hostet or anyone like that. I just, I've looked at it, and while I'm looking at it, I get it. And I, I remember this real well because I've done it a lot, and I've taught a whole lot of people how those four lines work. So I remember those really well. Tolkien wouldn't want you speaking it anyway, Chad. <laughs> That's right. But I'm glad it's in the films and it made the films. It's important. Um, it's important to hear that. Did you notice? Did you notice that when 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 everyone's arguing? Of course, they're arguing because the ring is there, right? The 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 ring is sitting in front of them. They're they're all ticked off at each other because of the presence of the ring. It's supposed to be that way. The ring but is you, almost egging it on. During yeah, the, it's yeah. almost like you get this. You get yeah. and and we talk a lot about how the ring is a character in the films, and you really get that underscored in this scene that the ring is almost enjoying this conflict, which is really interesting and smart. So did you notice? Did you notice the part when they all are arguing? And you, you mentioned earlier, Jen mentioned earlier that there's when Frodo is staring at the ring, and you see the fire in the ring, and you see all the people arguing as a reflection in the ring. But the entire time, over and over, you hear Ashnaz Durbatuluk, Ashnaz Gimbatul, Ashnaz Durbatuluk, Ashnaz Gimbatul, Ashnaz Durbatuluk, Ashnaz Gimbatul. It's the same. It's the first two. It's one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, over and over. Until he says, "I will take it." Yeah, ab- absolutely, and it's saying that in this whispered voice that we've we've seen before in other instances, like when um, the hobbits are hiding uh, the first time they encounter the Black Rider on the road. Um, there's there's a whispering sound that seems to emanate from somewhere, but we know it's from the ring. Um, also, the first time that uh, Gandalf talks to 
Frodo in Bag End. Um, and Gandalf says that Sauron and the ring are one. And a, a whisper comes from somewhere and they both look at the ring. It's, and so that's something that's not in the book exactly, that the, that the ring speaks. Uh, but they introduce that in the movie as a way of depicting that this ring has some sort of life of its own. Um, it seems to have a will and intentions of its own. And I, I think it's really effective and it's kind of terrifying. I mean, as you, as you pointed out, the fact that it's sort of chanting this to itself, it's like, uh, you know, I imagine like an old timey villain, just like rubbing his hands together and twisting his mustache, you know, while he's watching all these people get in a fight with each other. Um, the, the ring is just reveling in, in the conflict that's unfolding in front of it. And another thing I was going to say when y'all were talking about this, you remember um, earlier whenever we were talking about how no one can destroy the ring, right? No one. And then they say, we got to destroy it. And then Gimli tries to break it with his axe. What are we waiting for? And he goes and hits it again. Gimli cannot do that. Not that you can't not. So of course in the movie, Gimli hits it with his axe and his axe shatters into pieces. The problem with that scene is that Gimli thought that that would destroy it. If you think that what you are going to do will destroy the ring, you can't do it. If you like, if you if can't Gimli even attempt it, you can't even attempt it. Yeah, you you can't make yourself do it. If Gandalf told Gimli, you know, if you go hit that with your axe, it ain't it's just going to break your axe. It ain't going to break the ring. And if Gimli believed him, then he could do it. But if Gimli believed that he was going to destroy the ring by hitting with his axe, he wouldn't be able to do it. So, so basically, Gandalf at Bag End, Gandalf, when he threw the ring in the fire, the only reason he could do it is because he knew it wasn't going to do anything to the ring. Now, let me ask you this, a natural follow-up to that. We know that, uh, that what you're saying is true, that no one can actually attempt to destroy the ring. Does anybody in the universe know that? Even Gandalf? Well, Gandalf did and Saruman did, but in the beginning when they first learned about it, Elrond didn't. Isildur didn't. Those people at the at the council didn't until Elrond. Gandalf will have told Elrond, of course. But back in 3441, Elrond didn't know that. So you think that at the Council of Elrond, Gandalf knew that there was no way for any of them to throw the ring into the fire, even though that was the, I guess, superficially the purpose of the mission. So let's put it like this. Let's put it like this. Gandalf knew that Bilbo had not turned evil after having the ring for 60 years, and then Frodo had not turned evil after having the ring for 17 years. And he knew that Frodo could not throw it in the fire in his own fireplace. And then when Gandalf threw it in the fire himself, Frodo freaked out because, because Frodo couldn't do it. Frodo, Frodo, Frodo thought he was doing it. If you remember that from the, from the shadow of the past, Frodo got ready to throw it in the fire before he knew it, it was back in his pocket and Gandalf takes it throws it in the fire, and Frodo loses his mind for a second there, and Gandalf says, don't worry, your fire can't do anything to this ring. As a matter of fact, Ancalagon the Black couldn't hurt this ring, which I'm assuming everybody knows who Ancalagon the Black is. 
<laughs> sure, sure. I think that Gandalf had hope. He had only a fool's hope, as he says later in the movie. A fool's hope that this errand would be successful. He, regardless of, like, in the back of his mind, if he, if he thought, you know, when they get there, will they actually be able to do it? That may have always been a question in his mind. But he had hope, which I think is, like, the point of the story. So as far as that goes, getting getting on to that... The, the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien by Humphrey Carpenter, is it's really insightful for things that aren't in the book. It's, it's the only author that we really know that you can, you can peek into his mind and see what he was disguising in the book. Because without reading the letters, you can't really tell that Arrow is who destroyed the ring. You read the letters and you go, oh, wow, that does make sense. Arrow did it. Okay, so think about this from another standpoint. Gollum is being held captive in the same dungeons – of Mirkwood that Thorin and company were held captive in. They would let him out and go climb in those trees. Orcs had been following Gollum because Sauron released Gollum on purpose and had people following him because he said, this dude's going to lead us to the ring. He knows where Shire is. So they're following him. Gollum escaped them through the dead marshes. Aragorn caught him brought him to Mirkwood through Lothlorien, dropped him off at Thranduil's place. The orcs attacked, knowing he was being held. They attacked just so Gollum could escape. Gollum runs from the orcs and goes into the east Demril gate of Moria, which Moria is really easy to go east to west. It's just really hard to go west to east because all the forks are the opposite direction. Gollum got to the Holland Gate, the doors of Durin, speak friend and enter. He got there, and he couldn't do anything else. He couldn't go back. He didn't have the ring. He couldn't turn invisible. He didn't have any food. He's starving to death. And lo and behold, the doors open, and there's Gandalf and Baggins. Gandalf already knew Frodo couldn't hurt it. Gandalf already had a, a suspicion that Gollum was tied up with the fate of the ring. Gollum had just been uh, interrogated by Gandalf. No doubt Legolas was there because it was his house. Aragorn, he knows Aragorn, and now Gollum is starving to death inside Moria, and the doors open, and there's Gandalf, there's Legolas, there's Aragorn, and there's a bunch of hobbits. He know he's saved. This is all Spabimi. All of it. It's all instruments of providence. This is Eru guiding it, and there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that Gandalf saw that. That's that's a really interesting. I think I agree with you, but this is what makes it beautiful is that it is kind of unconfirmable. It it, it is not made explicit or super clear, and that's sort of what 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 makes it beautiful. It leaves a lot of room for interpretation. Who knows what exactly? How much they know? I mean, I certainly I certainly agree. Gandalf definitely appreciates that there is the the hand of providence at work, but obviously free will is still at play. So how much is he relying on the the strength of different characters? Does he conclusively know that there's no way Frodo would have the courage to throw it in the ring? I think you're probably right that he suspected that it was impossible, but did he conclusively know it was impossible? I don't know. But it's just a, this is just such a beautiful topic to explore. Again, what makes it really fun for me is that it is kind of unknowable. And there's a, there's a lot of room to insert ourselves and our own beliefs and desires and layer that onto the story. You know, we're talking about applicability versus allegory here and is an infinitely applicable story. But guys, I have had 
and I'm sure I speak for Jen. I've had a great time talking with you. I mean, this is this is probably the the longest we've ever chatted with a guest, and uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. And yet somehow I feel like we're only scratching the surface. Um, but that is the the beauty of Tolkien. I've really had a fun time bringing you on. Before before we close, I definitely want to um, give one shout out. It was mentioned briefly, but um, you two collaborated with our good friend Jordan Rennells, who we had on a previous episode to do an audio dramatized version of this very chapter, the council of Elrond. Um, it is available in full on Jordan's music of middle earth podcast. Um, we talked about it and played a clip at the end of our episode with Jordan, uh, a number of episodes ago. And so I just, again, encourage everybody to go check it out on, on Jordan's podcast. I think that it's also available on your podcast. Is that right? No, we didn't. We didn't uh, put it on our podcast because it was our podcast is you know basically for talking like this, but uh, we we put it we put it on his and we actually played it at the Prancing Pony podcast inaugural online mood. But I do have a little bit of uh, information on it that Jordan did not say. I was trying not to repeat anything that Jordan said. And so uh, I contacted him and told him I wasn't going to repeat anything he said about it. But here's this is some pretty interesting stuff that he did not say on your podcast. That was in episode 17 of your podcast, by the way. So uh, when we made that thing, like we said, Chad was Elrond. Of course, I was the ring. I did the whole Ajnaj Dabatulu thing. So there were 263 audio files from 31 voice actors. The 263 audio files were 18 and a quarter hours, and I listened to everything on average about three times. So that means that I listened to a little less than 55 hours of audio to make it. There were 44 total vocal tracks. About half of them had effects on them, and then there were 56 layered special effects, two ambient, and then Rebecca did the violin. So there was 144 tracks total. We did that kind of as a joke because of the gross thing, because of Bilbo saying that he had a gross. And oh my gosh, anyway, that is so bad yeah. for you guys to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah imagine that. So then, uh, so then there's there's a, a couple of little interesting tidbits that uh, that I always note. There were at least 15 people at the Council of Elrond, and here's how I know. First of all, there were 12 speakers, including Edestor, and those 12 speakers were Bilbo, Frodo, Gandalf, Elrond, Glowen, Boromir, Aragorn, Galdor, Legolas, Edestor, Glorfindel, and Samwise. But they, those 12 speakers also quote another nine non-attendees. And then two of them quote things that they read. And then Boromir quotes the dream, of course. And so we also have Gimli who doesn't say anything in the book, right? So the 12 that are there plus Gimli, that's 13. It also says that Edestor was the chief of several counselors. So if we count several has to be at least three, then that means that there's at least 15 there. Edestor was one of the 12, but there was at least two more. So there was at least 15 people sitting at the council and they spoke 64 proper names of people, 55 proper names of places, two proper names of weapons, and then the 13-word ring verse for a total of 134 
words that Tolkien invented in that single chapter. Just insanity. What an incredible project that you guys took on for yourself. And I'll say, as a listener, it came out very well. It was very enjoyable. And uh, you didn't just read the words. I mean, you really went the extra mile. It is uh, an immersive experience. And uh, you made a lot of creative choices that I think came out really well. So um, everyone should go check it out uh, on Jordan's podcast. Chad High, Chad Bornhold, great to have you here. Texas Tolkien Talk Podcast. Everybody, please go check it out. Last word, where can people find you online other than the podcast? How can they get in touch with you? So you can go to our website at texastolkien.com or you can drop us a line at texastolkientalk at gmail.com. Or you can say something wrong about Tolkien on Facebook and I'll find you. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, or you can Bornhold lives on Facebook, so if you say something wrong about Tolkien, he'll he'll get you. <laughs> hey, this was extremely fun, y'all. Extremely fun. This has been an episode of Watch Party, Lord of the Rings. May the hair on your toes never fall out. In this Greyhaven segment, we're having a little bit of fun with the fact that y'all are both from Texas. Jen and I both love Texas accents. We're from Arizona, so we're we're steeped in that cowboy culture. Okay, we appreciate oh, yeah. that, those Western vibes. And um, Jen also happens to be a playwright, uh, founding member of a Shakespearean company. We're not going to have you do some Shakespeare, but Jen did put together a little script, uh, an adaptation of a scene from the Lord of the Rings, from the Fellowship of the Ring, but we're going to do it in a Western style. So we're changing. Oh, this is taking yeah, you out of middle. Earth. I'm, re- I'm reading through it right now. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, now, Chad, hi, I think you, uh, you elected to be Frodo, Chad Bornholt. You, you, you chose to be Barlow and Butterbur. I'll give you a last opportunity to switch roles. If you want to switch roles. <laughs> uh, if either of, you know, a cowboy song or has got some yodeling, uh, history, I think that you might want to take over the Frodo role. An attempted yodel is totally fine. <laughs> okay. I don't, yeah, I'm not. I, I just sound like a hick. I'm not really one. <laughs> I'm gonna do Mary Pippin and Sam. Okay. You're Frodo, and Chad will be Butterbur, and we will be speaking in Western accents. Okay. Oh yeah, um, that's that's a, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a must. Anyway. That's a must. Yeah, Chad Bornholt, you got a really natural <laughs> Texas accent. Yeah, I'm going to try to, I'm going to make it even worse though. Yeah, Yeah, play it up. Do it up. Big. Go big. Go big. The stars are already shining. Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin arrive in Bree. They shake the dust off their boots and push open the batwing doors to the Prancing Pony Saloon, where they are greeted by the sounds of an old player piano, the smell of cheap whiskey, and one surprise barkeep. What in the Sam Hill? Hobbits? Four hobbits? They come down from the Shire by your talk. I'm Butterbird, and this here is my establishment. What's your business in these parts? Name's Underhill. We're looking for a dry room and a clean bedroll. But our business is our own. I reckon Gandalf the Gunslinger will want to be told we've arrived. 
I can offer y'all bite-sized rooms if you like. Get you situated lickety-split. But if you're looking for Gandalf, I ain't seen him in six months. The hobbits looked at each other worried as they followed Butterbur to a quiet table in the corner where he brings them vittles, fixings, and four bottles of sarsaparilla. Well, boys, I'm gonna get me a whiskey. Make that a double. Pippin and Mary sidle up with some cowpokes at the bar, leaving Frodo and Sam alone at the table, with the distinct feeling of being watched. Sam points to a weather-beaten stranger against the wall, watching them from under the wide brim of his ten-gallon hat. Butterbur, that there cowboy's been staring at us since we arrived. The stranger turns and spits out a guy with chewing tobacco straight into the spittoon. He's one of them wandering folk. Rangers, we call them. Dangerous varmints they are. He don't talk much, but when he does, it's all tall tales. I keep your shooting irons ready if he comes near, or better yet, stay away altogether. Just then, Frodo could hear Pippin's voice cutting through the crowd. Bilbo Baggins' birthday party was a whole killing good time. The best part of the story was when Bilbo gave his birthday speech. <laughs> well, if you don't mind me saying, your friend's a flannel mouth jaw while I've ever heard one. He's got the whole saloon listening to his story. Frodo was fit to be tied. If Pippin let slip about the ring, they'd be in a load of trouble. Frodo knew he had to do something, so he climbed up on the bar. Ooh, doggies. I'm starting to feel this here whiskey. I think it's time for a tune. Yo lehee by morning. From Frodo's voice wasn't half bad, and the others started clapping and laughing. Frodo forgot his danger for a moment and started tapping a jig right there in the bar. But not being a good dancer, he tripped and fell to the floor. And when he did, he accidentally slipped on the ring and disappeared from sight. The others stared in shock. Then all at once started shouting. Just hold your horses, hold your horses. I'm sure there's a good explanation for all this. Frodo knew he had to try and save the situation, so he crawled into a corner and took off the ring. Here I am, y'all. You've just witnessed the famous Underhill Medicine Show. Thunderation! Now see here, Mr. Underhill. Don't you go scaring my customers with your tumbling or conjuring or wherever it was. Folk around here don't cotton to strangers as it is. Now I didn't mean to cause no trouble. I think I'll just hit the hay. We'll be moving on at first light. Very good. I'll see you to your room. In fact, I need a word. I just remembered a thing or two about old Gandalf the gunslinger. And with that, Butterbird took Frodo and the hobbits up the stairs. Across the room, Strider's dark eyes followed him up the stairs, chewing his tobacco thoughtfully. <laughs>